We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Sitcom legend Jeffrey Holland helped me fulfil one of my lifetime's ambitions when he appeared on Beyond the Title back in summer 2019, where we celebrated some of his best-loved TV comedy roles from Heidi High to O Dr. Beeching. Beyond comedy success... Jeff has also cultivated a worthy career preserving Britain's comedy heritage and his one-man Laura and Hardy show epitomises this. In 2001, he teamed up with Andrew Seacombe for the BBC Radio 2 extravaganza Goon Again, paying homage to the influential comedy show reviving legendary scripts by Spike Milligan. I caught up with the sitcom legend in the light of the sad passing of the much-missed Barry Cryer to celebrate our finest comedy heroes. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Holland. Okay. Firstly, welcome back to Beyond the Title. This podcast is predominantly about comedy heroes, but first I wanted to get your own thoughts on comedy. So how important is it for us to preserve Britain's comedy heritage? I, well, that's a good question, but I think it's very important because, you know, most of my known career I've been involved in in comedy world, and uh, they always say that comedy, a laugh is the best medicine. And I always think that's very true. It's the best medicine there is. Makes you feel good. Makes you have a good laugh. And uh, and that's why comedy is so important. And that's why I'm I feel blessed to have been involved in it for all those um, years that I have. Um, so it, it's just one of those things that I fell into, I suppose, because I could do it. Um, and uh, I've, I've always loved making people laugh when, when my, the opportunity came along. I'm not a comedian as such. I'm an actor, you know, who is um, given comedy roles in, in certain scripts. Uh, and you you apply your acting skills to, the, to the, wit, the written word. And if you do it right, your audience will laugh and enjoy themselves. And that's why, that's why dare I say it, that our shows uh, that we did all those many, many years ago, are still popular today when they when they repeat it because they're just genuine fun, just good clean fun, and people like that. There's no embarrassment in them at all. You know, the characters just bounce off each other, and and I think that was Jimmy Perry and David Croft's great gift, that they were able to cast the right kind of characters together and to get the right actors to play those characters. And that's what happened in Dad's Army, uh, and the Gate Off Hot Mom, and then Heidi High, and you rang my Lord onwards to Dr. Beachy. Uh, because all those people in those situations, uh, the clever thing for them was that they wouldn't naturally have been together. Uh, in the concert party, they were all conscripts that were thrown into the jungle, into the concert party, to, you know, because they were various questionable talents, dare we say. And uh, and those businessmen in Warmington-on-Sea would never have socialised with each other, but under the common umbrella of the Home Guard, they were forced together uh, and uh, to get on with each other and to make an effort to produce, you know, the, uh, to combat the war effort. And, uh, and that's where the comedy comes from, the interaction between the characters. It's the same thing in Heidi High, um, all the characters in in the entertainment staff were failures. 
they were absolute failures in their own chosen professions. You know, the, I've said it before. It's, it's always worth saying again: the ballroom dancing couple who had, hadn't won a cup since 1943. You know, the the ex the, the ex jockey pulled the race, taken a bribe and pulled the race, lost his license. So he's looking after the horses and the donkeys. And and my character Spike, you know, he he wants to be a great comedian. You know, he left the tax office under the auspices of Ted Bovis, who wanted to train him up to be a comic, because Spike's got all the enthusiasm in the world, but absolutely no talent whatsoever. And that becomes evident. Evident. The only talent Spike seemed to have was about making funny costumes. But <laughs> he could have gone into the wardrobe side of the theatre rather than the comedian on stage. But he had all the, all the, dare I say, balls in the world, you know, like Jimmy Perry. Jimmy got up and he based his character, my character on his own experiences of butlins. And Jimmy used to get up and do, do jokes and entertain. And Jimmy was full of it all the way through to his last, last few years, bless his heart. And uh, that's what that's what's important to me about comedy. It's good. It's a good tonic, and long may it continue. Absolutely. Writing and starring in your own stage play surrounding Laurel and Hardy must have been a great achievement. But what did you learn about the double act when creating it? Well, I, I knew an awful lot about them to begin with, uh, which is why I wanted to tell the story. Uh, and I, when, when I met Gail Lowe, who wrote the bulk of the text for me, uh, we collaborated on it. And uh, I, I knew, as I say, I knew a lot about them both, but it was particularly Stan's story that I wanted to tell because uh, so many people don't know all that part of his background. You know, the, the fact that he had a little baby boy who died uh, it was born in 1930 and it had nine days. A little, you know, mortality amongst children was, was much worse than it is now, thank goodness, in those days. And he lost the baby son at nine days old and that's in the play. And, you know, it's, it's a, quite a poignant little piece for me to, to act. And was, all the money that they made, all the money that they lost, you know, Stan lost a fortune in the, in the Wall Street crash in 1929. Never recouped much of it. He lost about 30 grand. And those had to put a fortune in those days. And uh, he made about six grand back, but that was that was all. But, uh, you know, the, the wives they had, the, all the, both of them, you know, Oliver Hardy had three wives. And, uh, you know, the, the last one su- su- uh, survived him, as did Stan's final wife. He, he said, you know, uh, you see, there's a line in the play that said, I've got a wonderful wife at long last. You know, I make a, I make a, make taken a few hostages on the way, but I got there in the end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's a, that was a lovely line from Gail, though. There, but you know, it's the story of of the life, and I, I learned a lot about uh, Laurel and Hardy too. And I didn't really know that uh, Oliver Hardy had laid in his sickbed for in eleven months, nearly a year after his massive stroke, before he eventually passed away. His body just deteriorated, got worse and worse and worse. Until finally, in the end, he died in Lucille's arms, you know, his wife. And uh, there was a lot of details like that that I didn't know that I find absolutely amazing. Little stories, too, that I wanted to put in that I was told personally by people that knew them. Tommy Trinder, there was a great comic called Tommy Trinder. I don't know whether you remember him. Yeah, I think Josh does, yeah. And uh, he he shared a dressing room with me back in the late 70s during pantomime season. Uh, and he was uh, sort of on the... On the uh, last uh, opposite of his career at the time because he was quite an old chap then and uh, he appeared in the, in the 1947 
Royal Variety Show, or the Royal Command Performance, as it was called in those days, at the Palladium, when Laurel and Hardy were touring the UK with their stage show in 1947. And they appeared on the Royal Command Show. And there's a story he told me, which I wanted to put in the, in the play, which I have. And he said he was standing in the wings with Laurel and Hardy and the, the stage manager that was running the show, uh, and, of course, the audience in those days were all white tie tails, jewellery and tiaras. And it was really a question of who who was there to be seen to be there, not to be actually watching the show and enjoying it and laughing. Because they weren't laughing. They were not laughing. They were just looking around to see who else was there, you know, in the audience. And uh, Oliver Hardy actually noticed and said to the stage manager in the wings, he said, they're very quiet here tonight, aren't they? And the, the stage manager just sort of shrugged and he said, well, yeah, they're always quiet here on a Monday. <laughs> you know, because they always used to hold the Royal Variety Show on a Monday at the Palladium. <laughs> that was the uh, the tradition. And he told me, Tommy Trinder told me that story in our dressing room together. And I thought, well, that's a cracker, that, you know, it really is. So I, I wanted to put that in the show. So I got Gail to include that. Little things like that. And there was an actor I, I met called Henry Brandon who'd appeared in one of their feature movies in 1934. Um, he, he was playing a, a, an old wicked landlord. It was a melodrama sort of thing. Babes in Toyland, it was called. And uh, he, he said they were, there was a scene that they wanted to include. Uh, and he said, um, Stan, he said to Stan, well, are, are we going to rehearse it? And Stan, Stan said, no, no, no look, babe, babe will do that. I'll do that. Then you do that. And this, uh, he said, well, aren't we going to rehearse it? And Stan said, what, do you want to spoil it? You know, that, that was Stan's attitude. He didn't, he didn't rehearse deliberately with Ollie. They just talked about what they were going to do. And because they have such good instincts with each other, they, they just ad-libbed most of it, having mapped out the scenario of the piece. They ad-libbed it, and they used all these wonderful phrases and expressions like, why don't you do something to help me? You know, that they, they used to trot out all the time. Uh, and, and that was why Henry Brandon just couldn't get his head around the fact that he didn't want to rehearse. So anyway, he, he worked, he paid off. But the little stories like that that, I, you know, I wanted to get into the play, they're there now. And it's little details that make up that piece uh, that is so important to me to tell the story of Stan Laurel's life and Laurel and Hardy's together, you know. It's a, it's a wonderful play and I'm very proud of it. I'm hoping to get it back on soon when, 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 I can, when it's safe to go out there again. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in what ways are Stan Laurel's own contributions to British comedy frequently overlooked? Well, you know, he was a genius in his own right. He was... Again, a lot of people don't realise or don't know that he was not just the silly little dim guy you saw on the screen, the twit, if you like, the foil of all the jokes. He was the brains behind the entire act. You know, he went in, he worked with the writing team on on all the storylines and the scripts and the layouts. And then when, when they were shooting... He virtually directed everything himself. You know, they had credited directors for the films, but they just used to let Stan get on with it because they knew he knew what he wanted and he knew what he was doing and it made their lives a lot easier. So when you've got an accredited director on the on the credits at the end of the film, you know, you know he did half the work and Stan did most of it. 
And then at the end of the day, when they finished shooting, Oliver used to go off and play golf, which he loved to do. Uh, and Stan went back into the editing room, the cutting room, with the editors and, and uh, chopped it all up and put it together how he wanted it to be. So all the films of Laurel and Hardy, really, how, how Stan Laurel wanted them to be. You know, and that was his contribution. He, 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 he was a creator behind the entire, the entire piece. All the, you know, the whole act. Marvellous man. <laughs> Did he do anything in Britain just as himself, by himself? After Babe died, you mean? Yeah. No, he never did. No, he never did. He he was he had several offers, including a very generous offer, but from his friend Jerry Lewis, who was a big uh, film comic at the time, and he he was a great friend of Stan's, Jerry Lewis. And when Babe had died, <clears throat> Babe was Oliver Hardy's nickname. I call him Babe because I do. Um, and he was um, he was offered. Stan was offered to be a consultant on Jerry Lewis's comedy writing team. But because he knew Jerry Lewis was uh, quite, uh, you know, volatile personality and uh, was prone to getting very angry with people, he didn't uh, take up the offer because he he valued his friendship with Jerry Lewis more than he did the job, if you like. He knew there'd be trouble. He knew they'd fall out and it would ruin the friendship. So he chose not to take up the offer and keep the friendship, which he did. Uh, But, you know, at the end of the day, he had many offers, but he chose not to work again, ever, because he felt it would be disloyal to Babe's memory. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't work on his own. He wasn't, he he worked as half a double act and he knew it wasn't, it wouldn't be the same for him or for all for people watching. So he chose not to. A bit like Ernie Wise. A bit like Ernie Wise, yes. Ernie did try when Eric had died. He he did try. I saw him do a radio series. Um, I went to, to, I met him a couple of times after Eric. I never met Eric, but I met Ernie a couple of times after Eric had died. And uh, he was lonely. He really was lonely. He was lost without Eric. He completely lost. He tried very hard to work on his own to become, you know, Ernie Wise as Ernie Wise. But it was hard for the, the public to accept him without Eric. And, uh, and he, he struggled. And he struggled to the day he died, bless him. But he, he, he always wanted to be a Hollywood star, but never quite made it. You know, that was Ernie's big dream to be, you know, all these uh, big numbers they did in the show, like singing in the rain with a famous one in their big shows. Uh, he, he, he wanted that to be for a reality for him. He wanted to be in Hollywood doing that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, it, it, it was never going to happen. It was never going to happen, but he was very lonely without Eric, just the same as Stan was without Babe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, um, 
I guess that's the difference between uh, someone like Ronnie Corbett, who was like a performer in their own right. Yes, very different. No, Ronnie Corbett was a was a, a, an equal of Ronnie Barkas, shall we say? The two Ronnies was a wonderful combination of the, of the two of them because they both bounced off each other, they both loved each other, and they both appreciated each other's talent. Uh, and you know, Ronnie Barker did a lot of solo things, but Ronnie Corbett also loved to be on his own, you know, without the big Ronnie. He used to sit on that chair and tell very bad stories, very bad jokes. But, you know, because they were so bad, they were funny and the audience loved him doing them. But he was quite happy standing up on his own, uh, Ronnie, and he could, he could, he carried on after, after Big Ronnie died. And he was, he'd, he made a few appearances on his own, but he, he, he enjoyed it. He was an exception to that rule, I think, in a way. Yeah. And of course, Laurel and Hardy aren't the only comedy institution that you've celebrated. In 2001, you reunited with Andrew Seacombe for the radio celebration Goonigan. How daunting was it to re- revive something of such cultural significance? Well, it was it was a great challenge, that it really was. Uh, I've worked with the, the producer of that show, a man called Dirk Maggs, who has uh, been a, a producer for a long, long time. And I worked with him back in the 80s uh, and the 90s on radio comedies. And uh, Dirk always shared his love of the goon show with me. Uh, and of course, I've always done the voices just for fun, just for the hell of it. You know, and uh, he he knew I I'd got the the Peter Sellers characters off pat pretty much, and uh, and he, he he tried to get this team together, and he went he went up to uh, the the head of BBC Radio Comedy at the time, a man called James Moyer, not not our friend Vic Reeves, but the the original James Moyer who was a producer. And uh, and he said he wanted to recreate, because he'd done Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel as a series, which was uh, really a celebration of the Marx Brothers humour. And he wanted to do The Goon Show uh, and call it Goon Again, which we did eventually. But remember James Moyer, and you'll pardon the French, James Moyer said to him, all right, I'll stick my neck out, go ahead and try, but don't fuck it up. <laughs> and we didn't. We didn't. And uh, it it was just enormous fun. I've got a poster on the wall up there. It's a bit too small to show you details, but it's a, it's one of my many posters on the wall. They're very proud of. And uh, we 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 did this the four of us. Andrew Seacom playing his father Harry's part. Mm-hmm. It's very upsetting about uh, Andy that night. I didn't realise until afterwards when he actually got into the dressing room and burst into, into tears in his wife's arms because Harry was near his, near his death at the time. He was a very, very sick man um, with his cancer and he was lying at home. Uh, but he did say to, to Andy, you know, don't be ashamed, don't be frightened of it. He said, think of it as taking over the family business, which Andy did. Andy did embrace it, but it was very, very tricky for him emotionally. We had Lance Ellington on singing... Uh, for his father, Ray Addington, you know, who sang with the original Goon shows. <laughs> Lance sang one of his dad's songs exactly like him, but it was it was uncanny to, to be there when he was singing that. And we had um, Christopher Timothy, best known, of course, for the original films, the um, Creatures Great and Small series, um, playing the role of announcer, because his own father, Andrew Timothy, had been the Goon Show's original announcer back in the very early 50s. So we had that, and we had my friend John Glover doing the uh, Milligan voices. I worked with John a lot as well, with Dirk Max, in that. And uh, so between the three, four of us, we had a, we had a wonderful uh, evening. One of the best, I always say it was the best night I ever spent in the theatre. 
And you put that in your book, didn't you, Josh? I know, because I saw, I read that the other day. And it was lovely. It's a phrase I've been quoted as saying, and I really meant that. It was quite a very special night for me in the theatre. Couldn't believe it. John Wilson's orchestra, the great John Wilson, who he is now, uh, he does the proms every year now. He does all the Hollywood music at the proms every year. And he, he was just on, on his way up at the time. This was 2001, you know, 21 years ago when we did that. And uh, we, we had such fun. It was, I'll, I'll never forget it as long as I live. Great, great. A, a tribute to the goons, but a great night for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give us a bit now? A bit old, yeah. Oh, well, I, I went and uh, made your blood knock, you know. I, oh, look out there. No, no, come along there. My mind, the Thunderbox there. I went, oh, oh, oh. And it was, it was uh, my, my entrance was Blood Knock's music, the, 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 the big band entrance that Blood Knock has. I can't repeat that. But he said, oh, oh, oh dear. Oh, I say. Oh, the explosion's going off that right and said, oh, no, no more carried eggs for me. Oh. <laughs> And all that. And it was Henry Cron, of course. Oh, mean. Oh, what are you doing, naughty mean? You know, all those lovely voices. So great, great, just great fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, moving on to a slightly sadder subject. But uh, in the last few weeks, Britain has lost a true comedy pioneer. What are your favourite memories of Barry Cryer? Well, Barry. Bless him. We talked about this the other night because it was just the day after Barry died. And uh, Barry Cryer was immortal. I know he's he's died, but it's a silly thing to say. But his memory will live on as one of the greatest comedy um, inputs in the British comedy scene. You know, Barry was, to me, he was ageless. You know, ever since I've known Barry and I've known him... Oh, 30 or 40 odd years, you know, we've done radio shows together when he was sat next to each other on a panel, um, trying to trying to be funny. He was a great writer, a great creator of gags and a great gag teller too. But he was always, to me, he always seemed ageless. You know, he'd always been there and it was like he was always going to be there. But, you know, to actually learn of his passing was quite a shock uh, to the whole business. And, you know, there'd be a big hole left in show business now, Barry's gone. Because, you know, I got him on my phone. I used to ring him up occasionally and have a little chat. And, you know, he'd always finish with a joke. He'd always got jokes to tell. You know, <laughs> he used to have to create jokes for, for, for other comics. And, you know, he'd written for all the great names in the, in the business over the years. Uh, and Barry Cryer, he'd just go down in history as an as a absolute legend, a comedy legend. Much missed. Yeah. And uh, what is his legacy on British comedy? Sorry? What is his legacy on British comedy? Well, there you go. I, I sort of said it. It's, it's, yeah. He'll be remembered by everybody. You say, oh, I wish I could ring Barry and talk about that. You know, he'd give me an idea. You know, and uh, that's what he'd be like. Be, he's, he's immortal. He will be. And he'll be remembered forever by all the people like me who knew him in the business. And, you know, it's a pity because we don't have people like Barry Cryer. In, in the in the comedy game now, it's all very different now. With the stand-ups that are, are working, they were very successful and they've got great following, but they're they're not the same as Barry. Barry was a good old-fashioned theatre gag teller and writer, and uh, a stalwart of the comedy business. You know. Uh, uh, um, um, he 
Yeah, and he was at every comedy landmark as well. Yes. During the decades. Yes, that's right. And I mean, it's talking of landmarks. Um, we unveiled a statue to Spike Milligan in, in Finchley, you know, because he used to live in Finchley uh, a few years ago. Uh, and uh, we did a big unveiling there. There were a lot of celebrities there. And uh, I, was in, I was invited along to be part of it because of my association with the goons. And, uh, and I was asked to read a speech that Barry Cryer had written because he couldn't be there. He, he had other commitments. He couldn't be there on the day. So I was given this piece of paper to read this you know, tribute speech from Barry Cryer to the assembled crowd. And that was quite a humbling experience, really, to read Barry's words and uh, to be... I got got a couple of laughs for him, which was nice. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it was... That was was quite an interesting experience for me. Yeah. He was always there, as you say, all the big events. He was there at the Goon Show, when we did the Goon Show uh, recording. I think you quoted him in in the book, Josh, as having said, he came up to me and he looked me straight in the eye and he said, that was spot on. You know, and I've never forgotten that. Never, it was a great tribute from a great comic. You know. I remember he this I get what you're saying now. Uh, Barry used to call up Josh. And say, hello, this is Barry to another Barry. Oh, right. <laughs> That's nice. That's nice, yeah. Young Barry and Mr. Barry. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. He was a fashion bloke and we shall miss him terribly. Yeah. In recent years, you've done several conversational shows of Robert Ross celebrating your formidable comedy career. In what ways has this changed your own perception of your vast achievements? Well, I'm, I'm totally humbled by everything. I mean, I'll, I'll put it t- straight back to you, Josh, because I read what you'd written in your book about me, uh, and you, I, I couldn't believe you were talking about me. I don't, who is this comedy? Who is this comedy god that you keep on, you keep on about? I think, I think he means me, but it's, <laughs> it's very humbling. It's, it's a very humbling experience to be cast in in that kind of way as as part of. Uh, let me put it this way. I am very, very pleased and very proud to have been a part of what they are now calling the classic era of British television sitcom, you know, and to have been a, a part of that makes me very, very proud indeed. So, you know, it's 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 still very humbling when people talk about me in those terms. Um, people like me and Sue, you know, um, somebody wanted tweeted the other day. They want that want us to take that little conversation show up up north, so people in the north and the Midlands can see it. So Robert's looking into the possibility of possibly doing that because there were people in that audience who, who who've known us all all our lives and 
And they said afterwards, because we were in great demand in the street afterwards, we just couldn't get away. Uh, but uh, people were saying you know, things like, yeah, I, I learned so much tonight, I didn't know that about you and this about that. And, you know, I, they, they learned things they didn't know about us. But they thought they knew it all, but they didn't. So a little show like that, a little chat show like that is very valid, you know. To, uh, to help people understand what they want to know. And I'm flattered that they want to know more about me and Sue and, and the likes of us, you know, the stuff that we've done over the years. Oh, look, I've, I've just noticed my uh, my Dyson vacuum cleaner on the wall underneath Joan Collins there. I, I usually put a big, I usually put a big box of flowers in front of that to cover it up, but I forgot to do that today. <laughs> we didn't even notice until you pointed. <laughs> so I, just <laughs> I usually do that. Was a big vase of flowers on the table. <laughs> uh, Josh thought it was some sort of alarm or something, you know, <laughs> some sort of fitting. <laughs> Um, so looking back at your career, what would you say is your proudest achievement? Oh, well, I mean, so much to look back on, really. Um, I suppose Heidi High will always be blessed because that's what put me on the map in the first place. You know, it, it put a, a face to the name and a name to my face. So people knew who I was for the first time. But my my um, two greatest achievements for me, the first one being you rang the Lord because I was so very proud of that, as was David Croft. He, he always said it was the cherry on his cake. He was very proud of that production. Uh, and we were all very pleased to be a part of it. And I, I was absolutely thrilled. You know, it was like working in a real house with those wonderful costumes and fabulous props and the scenery. And, you know, they spent a lot of money on that show. And it's just a pity the BBC didn't nurture it the way they should have done. They should have repeated it, because the DVDs are selling very well, though they have done. People still love that show, and I get letters all the time. So, really, you rang the Lord, I suppose. And then, of course, Mr. Laurel, my, my one-man show. You know, it's a, an achievement I've waited over 40 years to get on stage with. Because when I had the idea when I was a young man, uh, back in the 70s, I knew I was too young to do it. You know, you can't tell a life story until you've had a life. Yeah. You know, and uh, I waited until I was in my late 60s before I actually got it onto the stage. And, uh, of course, it works now very well because, you know, I, I'm sort of the similar age now, Stan, just how Stan was when, uh, when those last few days of Babe's life, you know. So I'm a lot older now than Stan was now. But uh, anyway, there we go. Mm. Yeah, that's it. Mm. Uh, how do you think your own platform has allowed you to do things like that, like uh, passion projects, like the uh, the show? How my own what? How my own what? Background. Your your platform. Oh, my platform. Mm. Um. I don't quite know what you mean by that. Um,
was alluding to was because of the career you've had and your reputation that is your platform and that has allowed you to then go on to do these passion projects where whereas if it was a younger person just starting out maybe they wouldn't have had the backing or support yes I know what you mean it was when I first took Mr Laurel uh, to the Edinburgh Festival back in 2013 2014 I mean um, I went to see Anthony who runs the uh, Pleasance courtyard where all those little venues are and uh, we we discussed it and he actually said not me but he said well the, the combination of your name and his name should sell the show so I did have that advantage in as much as people knew who I was then uh, and I was able to bring uh, and this is my friend Mr Laurel to the Edinburgh Fringe and uh, and do very well I've been up there uh, three times now I've sold out three times with it and I'm hoping to take it back again next year in 23. Oh, brilliant. Because it would have been 10 years since I per- first put it out in 13. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll give it a final outing and see how it goes. I might be too old for it then. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, might, I still have the energy to do it. I'll do it then again, if I can. It's a hard slog with the, uh, the fringe because if it's worth going, it's worth going for the whole month of August. You know, and you can, you can, I actually made a profit, which is quite unusual when you go to Edinburgh because it's a very expensive thing to do. You have to cover your own costs. And, and uh, but you know, because I, I was in a slightly bigger room for the third and, and fourth year, I was there. Uh, we were able to take more money at the door, uh, and as a result, I covered my costs and went home with some money in my pocket, which was which was very unusual and quite uh, you know quite gratifying, really. So I'll show, give it another go next year, all being well. So we'll see. But yes, you're right. It is my name because people know who I am now. Uh, it does help to be able to get out there and. and uh, <laughs> Give, give yourself more credibility, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. How do you think your era of comedy will be remembered? Well, I th- I'm just, I think I'm, at the risk of repeating myself, I think the, people call it the, the, the golden age of British sitcom, you know, the 70s and 80s, you know, creeping into the 90s with uh, Dr. Beachy, which we did. And, uh, and I, I, I think, you know, I'm pr- I was going to say proud to repeat myself and say I was very proud to be a part of what is considered the golden age of British comedy and uh, and how lucky I am, really, to, to have been around at that time and to work with David Crawford and Jimmy Perry on the, the Dad's Army stage show back in 75, which is where we first met. And I was just recruited as a, a, as a piece of walking furniture, really, the, the Boys and Girls Chorus. And when in rehearsals, th- throughout rehearsals, they both realised what I was capable of and how useful I could be to them, uh, as, a, as a result of which I was asked to do a couple of eight-hour hot moms, a couple of are you being served, a dad's army itself in the final series, driving a truck and nearly running Clive Dunover. <laughs> but, um, and then, of course, when Heidi High came up, the road spike with me in mind, which is wonderful. So, uh, you know, I'm a very lucky man to have been part of all that. And uh, so I consider myself to be very lucky. Thank you. And uh, final question, what's next for Geoffrey Holland? I don't know. 
I'm still in lockdown, you know. Um, um, I've, I've got to be careful with my uh, because I've got a condition. I've got a blood condition, which um, puts me on the critically vulnerable list. You know, it's not a, it's not terribly uh, uh, serious or life threatening. I've got medication which has levelled it all out. So uh, you know, but I am on the critically vulnerable list technically. So I have to be very careful. I, you know, I don't put myself at risk. Which is why we transferred our show the other night to the Leicester Square Theatre from the museum, because the museum is a tiny little place, as you know, uh, very, very small and intimate and no ventilation whatsoever. Uh, with 75 seats sold out, it would have been a very crowded little room. So we went to the, because they, they also own the Leicester Square Theatre, but Rob thought it might be a better idea if we go to, the, to there to do it. And of course it worked out terrifically well, because Sue and I were up on the stage, away from everybody, away from potential um, infections. But, you know, we, we mixed with everybody outside afterwards, and I had to go to a hospital for a blood test yesterday, and I, I tested negative, so all is well. All is well. So, uh, yeah. so uh, you know, there, there we are. So, Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.